You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. All right. Uh, well, when I graduated uh, college, I went out on my first tour as a recording artist with a, a couple other acts. Uh, the headliner for the tour was a band called New Song. Anybody remember New Song in here? We got some yeah. new, yeah. They wrote that uh, song called uh, Christmas Shoes. So I wanna buy these shoes. Remember that one? Uh, it's the hokiest song on earth and I cry every time. Uh, both of those things are true. Uh, the second act on the tour uh, was actually a Christian illusionist. Which, if you're wondering what a Christian illusionist is, is a person whose illusions are saved. And uh, he uh, went out, and uh, the, this cocktail of uh, folks on this tour sounds like, was this even a cool show? But I promise you it was. It was actually super fun. And my favorite part was actually the illusionist. We got to be good friends. And every night, I would stand side stage, and I'd kind of watch him do his thing, because I was just fascinated at what he did, and how he just engaged the audience. And every night, he would start his part of the show the same way. So I'm going to start it with you guys, because I've watched it enough. I think I, I got it figured out. So uh, uh, he, he, you know, welcomed the crowd, and he said, Okay, everybody, we're going to loosen up uh, together. Uh, put your arms out like this right in front of you. I'm asking you people right now. Yes, go ahead. Just put them up with your thumbs to the sky. Nice and proud. There we go. And now take those thumbs and put them down to the ground just like this. Then we're going to do this little ancient technique. We're going to cross over, left or right over left. Interlock those fingers and keep the thumbs pointed down. That's the important part. Thumbs point. We always got one not doing it. Come on, sir. In the back. Okay. Yes? Okay. Great. So thumbs pointed down, all the way down. And then on the count of three, I just want you to do just like this with me. One. Two, three. Okay, everybody go like this. Yeah? Thank you guys. Be here all night. See ya. He did that every night. It was amazing. I'm not a witch. Uh, witches are women. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm, not, I'm not one of those. But we lo they loved it. They loved that stuff. We love this stuff. Why do we love this stuff so much? Because we love seeing the impossible happen. That's why we love it. That's why we love watching this stuff. Just show me something that couldn't possibly happen on earth. I love it. We even have a word for it in our culture when the impossible happens on earth. We call it a miracle, right? That's what this is. Now, hopefully, uh, all of you recognize I did not perform a miracle uh, right now. If you think I just performed a miracle, uh, see me after class. That is uh, not what happened. Uh, if I told you what I did just now, uh, we would all groan uh, with how dumb the trick uh, really was. Some guy down front last service was like the whole service just trying to figure it out. It's <laughs> like, so calm down. I'll tell you later. Uh, but we love these things. Uh, but we also know that's not what I did. What I did was not a miracle. It was a trick. It was just a, it was just a dumb trick, right? We love miracles. We want to do miracles. But when it's up to us to do the miracles, the best we can offer is really just that. It's just a cheap trick. And the thing about tricks is, at the end of the day, they really actually don't have any power to do anything. They, they can't produce anything like lasting change. They're just tricks. There's nothing really special about them. This is the moment we're in today with the story of Abram and Sarai, his wife. God has made promises to Abram. If you've been with us, you know this. He's promised all kinds of things, crazy promises, promises that they're so absurd that it would take God working a miracle for them to happen, right? He, he looks at them and he goes, I'm going to give you an amazing piece of land for your own, that happens to be filled with thousands of people who want to kill you, right? 
I'm, I'm going to give you millions of descendants, Abram, and I'm going to give those to you even though you guys can't have babies. Right? Odds are impossible. The thing is crazy. What do you do under these conditions when God's promises are literally impossible? That's what we're witnessing today in Abram's story. And really, this is the tension, not just that they lived in then, but that we live in now. This is all of us, like, all the time. Think about this. What is the Christianity? What this thing we call Christianity, what is it really about? Is it not fundamentally about a God who makes absurd promises to people? Hey, if you trust in me, I will actually make you righteous. That's crazy. If you put your faith in me, I will change your, I can remove your sin from you. I, if you trust in me, I promise to provide for every one of your needs. These are promises in the scriptures to God's people. These are absurd, big, audacious promises that God is constantly making to us. And the, and the work, the fight that we really have in front of us, and not just Christians, but every person, this is the fight that's before every one of us on earth. Will I let God work the miracle, or will I settle for me just doing a magic trick? That's really the question that's before all of us all the time in every moment. And so what we're doing today, we're, we're watching Abram and we're watching Sarai avoid the miracle of God, the, God the, the miracle he wants to produce in their lives, and as they kind of settle for their own sort of magic trick version of things. And it's going to unfold today in sort of three easy steps, like an infomercial, right? It's three easy steps to avoid God doing a miracle in your life. That's what we're witnessing today. I'm not advising these steps. I would advise against them. But we are going to witness them nonetheless. What are the ways that, you, that they and then consequently you and I tend to avoid God doing that miraculous work in our life? We're going to watch that unfold so that we can reflect on it, and then change accordingly. We're going to watch that happen. So what are the steps for avoiding a miracle in your life? Step one is this. Make the promise more possible. If you want to avoid God working a miracle, the first thing you need to do is make the promise more possible. Listen to this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Now, uh, stop right there. I, I don't know if you spotted it when you heard that, but our little family unit right here just, uh, just found uh, out what we in the business like to call a loophole. Yeah? The, uh, remember what God said to Abram uh, just a chapter earlier. When, when we were here last week, God showed uh, uh, up to Abram and he promised him something. He promised him an heir. And he went out of his way in the text last week to make it clear this child, this heir is actually going to come from you, Abram. So Genesis 15, 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. He's talking about Eliezer, the guy that Abram put forth. He said, can we try this guy? He said, this man will not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. In the Hebrew, it reads like this, the one will come forth from your inward parts. I'll let you put together what all that means. So Abram, from last week, we know has to be involved in this miracle. Right? He is part of this, this equation. He has to be involved in the making of this child. But do you know who God didn't mention? 
we notice who God didn't say anything about last week? Sarai. He didn't say nothing about Sarai. He, and, and Sarai sees this and she spots a loophole. So she introduces an idea. It's an idea we all love to introduce. What if we made this impossible promise a little more possible, right? Abram, a, an old man and a barren woman having a baby, that's crazy. That thing is crazy. We can't even imagine it. But just like an old guy having a baby, that's not crazy. It's a little gross maybe, but it's not crazy, right? It's not like the craziest thing we've ever heard. What if we made this thing a little bit more possible? And do you know what we love? Just all of us love so much in our flesh. We love possible, man. Right? We love, you know what? You know why we love? We love possible because possible means I can actually do something about this. Possible means I don't have to like wait on God to do the thing. I can just go get the thing. If it's possible, then I, I can do something about this. This is, this is what we all do in our attempt to avoid needing God. We lower that bar, that impossible bar up here, all the way down to what feels possible so that we can kind of get some skin in the game. Uh, have you ever heard this? God doesn't expect me to be perfect. God, expects me to be per- God doesn't expect me to be perfect. He, what he wants is for me to try my best. Right? Get out there, give it a good old college try, right? And then if I do that, it will work out in the end. Have you heard that before? Have you thought that before? Is that what the Bible says about that? Matthew 5, 48, from Jesus' mouth, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Galatians 3.10, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You kept all the commandments? No, then you are under a curse according to Galatians. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law, man I'm nailing this, I'm actually, I got my act together, I'm doing well, yet stumbles in one point. I just keep lying, that's the only thing. He has become guilty of all. God doesn't expect me to be perfect. You bet he does. That's what the text says. God doesn't expect me never to lust. God doesn't expect me like never, like I get like not being an addict, but like never lusting, really? That's, that's not, that can't be his standard. Ephesians 5, 3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. God didn't expect that? You bet he expects that. He absolutely expects that. That's what the scriptures say. Anybody sweating right now? That's what, I'm just saying what the Bible, that's what the Bible says. Some of you have your bar too low, man. Some of us got our bar all the way down here. All we got to do is kind of put our foot road. Are you, you are trying to turn what God says is impossible. The standard is up here. I can't even see the top. Down to something that is possible. But can I just float this idea to you for a second? What if God doesn't want it to feel possible? What if that was the point? Like, did you notice what Hagar said? I mean, what Sarai said when she was uh, giving 
Abraham her case. She said, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Why are they in this pickle? Why are they, who prevented her from having children? Sarai says it from her own mouth. The Lord did. The Lord prevented me. Can you, we're just going to stop right here for a second. Can you appreciate that God permits the problems he wants to solve? You think God didn't know she was barren? He caused the barrenness. I'm going to say it again. Can you appreciate with me today? God permits the problems he intends to solve. Did you ever think that the money might be tight right now? Precisely because God wants it tight right now so that you, in faith, could cast yourself on him and he could do a great work in your life. Do you ever think that that might be what he's up to? Do you ever think that m- maybe your failure at keeping God's commands like you so want to do might just be so that you can see in the end you need someone else to keep God's commands for you if you're ever going to make it. You think that that might be what he's up to? That's exactly what he's up to. But this is what we all do. We avoid the miracle, right? By making God's promises, not just impossible, but way down here to possible. I'm just going to say this again. Make the promise impossible. Keep it impossible. It has to stay in impossible land or you will never see your need for him. You'll never see it. Here's what you will see. If you make the promise of God possible, you will always move from the promise is now possible to step two, which is I am now capable. Step two is we make ourselves more capable. When the bar comes down, now I think I got a shot to step over it. Verse three, so after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Stop there. You see what's happened? Now now that we've figured out we don't need this barren old lady in the cocktail to to make this thing work, now now that we don't need her to realize God's promises, now now I can get to work, right? That's what verse 3 is all about. Abram has an Egyptian servant named Hagar, who who he takes as a second wife, and he has a baby with her. Now, this seems uh, super bizarre and grotesque to us even, but, but in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this was a normative social custom. If you were childless, you could have a child through a surrogate wife. This was a normative means that was practiced in the ancient Near East to have a kid if you couldn't have a kid. You take a, a second wife. It was not outside the norm. It was being resourceful. You do happen to be a polygamist at the end of it, but it gets the job done, Okay. <laughs> But see what's happening here. When the impossible bar gets lowered all the way down to possible, now we, all of a sudden, do you feel it? There's an optimism now. There's an, like, I can, I can do something now. Like, there's an optimism about my own ability to get things done. This is, this is true of all of us. Let me give you some examples. Uh, what is prayerlessness? What is, what's your prayer life like? Anybody wrestle with prayerlessness? What is prayerlessness fundamentally? Is, is not prayerlessness fundamentally, I think I can just get it done on my own. I think I, I, think I could probably figure, if you actually believe to the core of who you were that your marriage would not heal apart from divine supernatural intervention, if you actually believed that, 
Do you know what you would be doing constantly? We would be pleading with God. This is me too. If you actually believed deep inside you that your addiction would never break unless a miracle was performed in your heart, that something from outside you came in to change you. If you actually believe that, you would be pleading with God constantly. And when we don't, when we live in prayerlessness, we are essentially saying, I actually think the bar's down here. I think I'm going to give it a shot myself. I don't actually think I need him that much. What is, what is, world, what is every religion? Fundamentally, like all of the, the religious world systems of the world, what, what are they at the core? Are, are they not basically this? That, that we're, we're going to live now with a sense of a, a manageable amount of rules to obey. That if I can obey them well enough, God will accept me. Do you hear what's like humming in the background behind all of our sort of religious worldviews? Here's what's humming. I'm capable of this. It's just five pillars. Right? It's just seven sacraments. It's just, it's just this list. It's just Ten Commandments. It's just, I've just got to do these handful of things and I'll, I'm capable. I'm capable. This is what the heart of flesh says. I'm capable. I can do this. The bar has come down and I think I can step over it. Here's the big problem though with when we think we're capable of what only God can do. How many of you know it just never goes to plan? You know what I mean? Like does it ever, has that ever worked for you? How's that going for you? Let me show you how it worked for Abram and Sarai and we can kind of dialogue about it, shall we? So verse 4, I want you to listen to what happens immediately following their little magic show. Listen. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. There it is. There's a kid coming. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Instant first result of faking the miracle, contempt. Then instantly, bitterness. Verse 5, and Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be done to you. I gave my servant to your embrace, but when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Then instantly, passivity. But Abram said to Sarai, uh, behold, your servant's in your power. Do, do as you please. Then instantly, malice. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her. Then instantly, fear. Then she fled from her. This is the fruit of their decision. As soon as they hatch their little plan, as soon as they operate in their own capability, not looking to God, what do we see? Contempt, bitterness, passivity, malice, fear. Instantly. It never goes to plan. They did all this work. They did so much work. And it was worse off for them at the end than when they started. This was uh, me, my junior year of high school. I'm going to tell a story to you. I'm not proud of it, uh, but maybe we could be friends at the end. Here we go. Uh, my junior year of high school, I did not, uh, how do you say this in English? Uh, shower. Just, just, didn't, just didn't do it. Just didn't, anybody got time for it. But, but, but I had a mother who cared that I did. Uh, but in my resistance, I found a loophole. Here's what I would do. Nothing of what I'm about to say is a lie. I would wake up every morning. I would go out of my room into the bathroom. I'd turn on that steaming hot shower. I'd get everything foggy, right? <laughs> then I'd put my hand in the faucet. I'd do a little sprinkle, sprinkle right here. Kind of get like, a, oh yeah, he definitely was in there. Look, going, right? Then I laid a bath mat down. I put one foot in, one foot out. And I fictionalized footprints on the bath mat of wet, 
feet. I would then wrap myself in a towel so I could pass from the bathroom back to my bedroom in case my mom was to see me do it. I did more work <laughs> than you do showering only to be stanky at the end of it. Do you understand? This is what is happening. This is what we do when we don't let God perform the miracle. We end up doing more work only to reek at the end. That's what this is. And, and I'll demonstrate it to you. It, all of the latest data we have coming in right now about millennials and Gen Z right now is telling us that they are, we are, the most anxious generations that have basically ever lived. Our worry is literally crippling us as a culture. Like we're so stressed, so worried, so much anxiety. But, but from a Christian vantage point, let's consider what worry is for a second. What is worry? When you think about what that is, what, what is it fundamentally? Is not worry just the feeling you have when self-reliance fails you? Right? Realizing, oh, I actually lack the ability to control my circumstances, to control my environment in the ways I thought I did. And what my mind and body produces in that moment when I realize that is called worry. I'm stressed now. I have anxiety because I can't manage this like I thought I could. It's past my ability to manage. Do you see what we're doing? We are all trying to perform miracles we can't perform. And when they fail us, we're ruined by it. It's devastating us. And one thing this story is meant to teach us is this. It won't work because it can't work. You can't do it. You cannot make miracles happen. You cannot. No, you can't. That's what you're meant to feel when you're reading their story. You're not capable of this. It just ends up with you in more trouble than you were before. George Whitfield, uh, the great evangelist of the, the 1700s, he was reflecting later in life on his early life before he was saved, but while he was still in sort of like the religious environment of his day. And he was reflecting on what his life was like before he trusted in the miracle of Jesus. He, here's what he said. I began to fast twice a week for 36 hours together, prayed many times a day and received the sacrament every Lord's day. I fasted myself almost to death all the 40 days of Lent during which I made it a point of duty never to go less than three times a day to public worship besides seven times a day to my private prayers. Yet I knew no more that I was to be born a new creature in Christ Jesus than if I had never been born at all. What is he saying? He's saying, I thought I was capable of performing what only God could perform. I thought I was capable of generating new life in me. And so I tried and I tried and I prayed and I fasted and I did the sacraments and I did the things and it didn't work. All I got at the end was not new life, just exhaustion. Just exhausted at the end. You feel like that ever? Just like, I am doing so much. And I, it is not, whatever the thing I was looking for at the end of this, I'm not getting that. I'm getting a lot of exhaustion though. That's what is happening here. When we see the promise as more possible, when that bar comes down, and now all of a sudden we think we can get our legs over it, we do try to get our legs over it. We see ourselves as more capable. It's how it happens every time. But all that, if we're honest, 
Isn't it just the smokescreen for the, the real issue behind all of it? Which is really step three. Step three is this. You want to avoid the miracle, you make God less powerful. That's, that's really what we do at the end. Okay, so, so where are we? Uh, we've been in the beginning part of chapter 16. I'm going to skip a lot of it now. We're, we're, we're skipping some amazing sections. God pursues Hagar, and it's beautiful. He does some amazing stuff in her life. He changes, uh, he meets with Abram, changes his name to Abraham. That whole thing goes down. He introduces the sign of the covenant, circumcision. All that's going down. I'm skipping over all that because I just want to zoom in on one more interaction that God has with Abraham where he addresses Abraham's little magic show. And it's in verse 15. I want you to listen close. He says this. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings and people shall come from her. What is he doing? God is putting that promise squarely back in impossible town, right? He's going, I've just let you know, last chapter I told you it was you, and now I'm saying it's also her. I'm going to bless her. Nations are coming through her. I've picked the barren woman. I haven't picked the fertile woman. I picked the one who it's impossible to have kids. That's who I picked. He's, he's setting it back in the impossible world that he wanted it in. Now watch what Abraham does when he sees that this thing actually is as impossible as it seems. He's finally kind of having to face it. That like, oh, there really is no workaround for me here. There's really no recourse I have. What does Abraham do when he stares the impossible right in the face? Answer, he does what we all do. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What does he do when he's faced with the impossible? What does he do? He laughs and he bargains. That's what we all do. He laughs and he bargains. There's, there's just no way that this is happening. There's no way this can happen. Can we please keep running with my plan? Right? I, I made a kid. He's right here. Like, let's do this plan. It will work. That's what he's saying right now. But what is he really saying? See, what, he, what he's not saying, he's not saying anymore, I, I don't see how I can do it. That's not what he's actually saying here. What he's actually saying is this. God, I don't actually see how you can do it. He's faced with the impossible. And when he is, he ultimately says, no, it's you that can't do it now. I have a plan. We were running with mine just fine. I don't think you can do it. He makes God less powerful in his mind, in his heart. And do you know what God says to this? To this fearful, stubborn, can we please run plan B, man? I love God's response. You know what God's response is? Nah. Literally, that's what the text says. Verse 19, God said, nah. No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. God said, no, no, this has gone far enough. I think we're, I think we're done with this. I'm not going to let you rely on yourself anymore. I'm not going to let you, I'm not going to let you 
rob me from performing a miracle in your life. I'm going to do this thing by myself. So in the end, when it happens, you will know who to thank. And it won't be you. It will be me. That's what's about to happen. He overcomes Abraham and Sarah's scheming. Their little magic show. And he says, no, we're going to do it my way now. I remember feeling this uh, about 18 years old. I was just starting to play some music. I got this really great guitar. I'm a lefty, so you can never find these things. I got one as one of two in the world, if you can believe it. And that guitar was stolen from the trunk of my car. Oh! And uh, I didn't know what to do. I had shows coming up. I had to figure something out. You know, I'm just, this felt so like overwhelming. What, what on earth am I supposed to do? And it dawned on me, oh, I got it. I know what I'm going to do. I hatched a plan in my brilliance. I'm going to pirate illegal computer software and sell it to buy myself a guitar. And I thought the plan was so brilliant that I brought it to my youth pastor to boast about it. Bro, you'll never believe what I figured out uh, I'm going to get money from. And I tell him this plan and he was just like, no. (laughs) And I'll never forget what he said back to me. He looked at me in that moment and he said, Jimmy, with everything in your life, you only get to tell one story about it. Do you want that story to be in order to buy a guitar that I'm going to use to worship King Jesus with, I'm going to pirate illegal computer software and sell it on the black market. Is that the story you want? You can tell that story. Is that the one you want? Or do you want your story to be, I took my hands off the wheel. I said, I don't see a way through this unless God does something. I stepped back and I watched God perform a miracle. I hated that guy. But I, but I did. I, I finally conceded that that's right. I need to take my hands off the wheel. And I stepped back. And can I tell you something? The moment I stepped back, do you know what happened? I got a card in the mail from my aunt in Wyoming who was wishing me a happy high school graduation. And inside the card was a check for the exact amount of money I needed to replace that guitar. As soon as I stopped attempting the miracle, I actually got to witness God do one. And that's what's being offered to Abram here and to us this morning. There are so many folks in this room, guys, that need a miracle right now. We were at Sing and Pray uh, this past week uh, in this room. Rodney got on stage, and this room was full right here. And he asked, he didn't know I was uh, preaching this with this focus and all that. But, and he asked from the stage, is there anybody in this room right now that you just need God to do a miracle? Like, if he doesn't act now, it's going to go really bad. You need him to intervene in your life right now. Would you please stand up in a third of the room? got on their feet. So I, I know in a room this large, there are so many of us right now that when you hear this, you're like, oh no, I know exactly what feels impossible that I need God to do. I, I see that. I feel that right now. Maybe for you, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've gotten sideways with somebody you love dearly and now you've got like just a, a broken relationship. Maybe it's a broken friendship and you're just, you, you love this person, but you can't, you're not able to run with them anymore. And just the thought of like that reconciling thing happening, you just can't even see how that would ever happen again. It just feels so impossible for you. 
Or maybe for you, you've got a, a wayward kid. I've, I've gotten to walk alongside so many of us in this church who have a wayward son or daughter who le- abandoned the faith, abandoned the family, are not walking with Jesus anymore. And when you think about it, they're on your mind all the time, man. And when you think about them, you just think, I can't even see a version of reality where they would come back to Jesus, trust him afresh, walk with him again. I can't even imagine. It feels, the bar's here for you. Or maybe you're, maybe you're the wayward one, right? You, you, uh, you've just decided, I think I've got this. And you're just trying life your own way at your own pace with your own rules. And you're just, maybe you're here even this morning kicking the tire on this whole Christianity thing because it's not working for you. You're miserable. You're dying inside. And she's just like, is this, is this as good as it gets? Is this what? It is, and you know I need a miracle. Can I, can I tell you what this text and what our God is putting before you, what you're being invited to do this morning? Can I tell you the first thing you're being invited to do? You need to embrace. It really is impossible. It really, the bar, you know how you can't see the top of that bar? It's because you shouldn't be able to. You can't see it because it's impossible to reach on your own. You need to embrace it's impossible, and you need to embrace you really are incapable we have this cultural thing where we just want to enable each other. Like, you can take on the world. And I'm telling you, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we're weak and needy people. We're weak and needy. And it's not a cool message, but it is the message of the scriptures. You actually can't get over that bar by yourself. You can't do it. And when you can settle that it's really as impossible as it seems, I'm really as incapable as I seem, then you can finally do the next thing that you gotta do, which is to just be able to confess it's God alone, you alone, God, that are powerful to perform miracles and I need you to do it now. That's what you're being invited to do this morning. I don't know what the thing is in your life. I don't know what you need, but what I'm telling you is admit he alone can do it and he loves responding to that heart. He loves it. I'll I'll finish with this. The Apostle Paul is writing uh, at one point a letter to the church at Galatia in the New Testament. And he writes in chapter 4 about this story, the very story of Sarai and Abram and Hagar and Ishmael, that whole thing. He writes about it. And he talks about this story as an analogy for how the Christian life works. I'd encourage you after service sometime today, go read Galatians chapter 4. It'll blow your mind. Super encouraging, super helpful. But what he says in that story, the application he makes essentially is this. There, there are really two ways to live in life. There is a way to live that's, we'll just call it the Hagar plan. The, the Hagar plan is the plan where the bar's down here and I think I can get my leg over it and we solve it ourselves. We play our little magic trick. We figure out a way to do it. I, I, I white knuckle my way uh, through this alleged miracle and I get the thing done as best as I can. The Hagar plan says it's up to me and I'm going to try really hard and You can totally run that plan. Most of the world is running that plan right now where you just figure it out on your own. But there is another plan and it's the plan God set before us this morning. It's the Sarah plan. And the Sarah plan says no to all that. The Sarah plan says, if he doesn't show up now, nothing happens. There is no change in me that's gonna take place. I will be the same old, addicted, sinful, curmudgeon-y, angry, bitter, gossipy, sexually addicted, whatever, whatever person. I will be the same now unless God does something in me. 
I said, God, would you do something in me? That's, that's the Sarah plan. And then he does this, this thing right after that where he quotes a verse from the prophet Isaiah and he basically is saying this, this is what, if you embrace that as how you're going to live your life, that Sarah plan, that Sarah mentality, this is what that life lived out looks like, feels like, sounds like. And listen to this. This is what he says, verse 27. Rejoice. What a great opening word. Rejoice, O barren one. <laughs> Who does not bear? That's weird. Break forth and cry aloud. You who are not in labor. Why? For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has a husband. What's he saying? He's saying the only people who will get spiritual life are the people who can admit they're spiritually barren. The only people who will change, who will grow, who will get over, are the people who can admit, you know, when it, when it comes to change and growth and getting over, I'm like a barren woman. I cannot produce this spiritual thing I need to produce in me. Something's going to have to happen outside of me. And he says, if that's you, if you can own that, guess what you get to do today? Rejoice. Because that's the kind of person God shows up to. The one who says, I cannot. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is the Christian way. So the invitation today is, are you willing to abandon that Hagar mentality and embrace the Sarah plan? Here's the reality. That whole plan, the way God works in that, it's exactly what the gospel is, isn't it? It's exactly how the gospel works. God looked at a bunch of spiritually barren people who could not produce for themselves. And he said, no, I will not let you keep trying to fabricate a miracle on your own. I'm not going to let you do that anymore. I'm coming now. I'm coming to do the miracle myself in you. And he sends his son, Jesus, who lives the miraculous life that all of us are trying to do and cannot do. He does it perfectly as a miracle on our behalf. Then he crawls up onto the cross and dies for all our magic shows. He dies for all the ways we've attempted to fabricate what only God can do. And he rises from the dead, defeats death, and offers us that miracle if we will take it. The question this morning for you is, will you take it? This isn't just like a, if you're lost, you should listen now and Christians get to tune out. This is how the person changes in life. Whether you're lost or saved, we all need the same miracle. We need God to do what we cannot. So will you cast yourself on the Lord Jesus for the first time or just afresh today? That's what he's offering you. Stop trying to do the miracle and let him do it for you. It will make him look great and your heart happy. And we'll get to rejoice together. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, this thing is impossible and many of us, all of us at different points have made it too possible, too tolerable, too manageable. And Lord, 
that is not pleasing to you. And where we have done that, we are sorry and we're asking God for grace. Would you please help us see that what you want to produce in our lives is nothing short of absolutely impossible. We cannot change ourselves. Only you can. So God, will you change us? Will you work in these next moments as we worship to soften our hearts? Will you convict somebody today, right now, of their attempt to avoid the miracle? And will you cause us to cast ourselves on the Lord Jesus, the miracle worker? We love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen.